Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hey, everybody. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geeks. Teach the Geek. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews. Uh, Teach the Geek is an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Much like one of my former guests, Andrew Kelly, Patrick Sweet is an engineer with Business Savvy. A bachelor's in engineering and electrical engineering and an MBA are proof of that. I came across Patrick actually via another former guest, uh, Thomas Anderson. And he, Thomas put me on to Patrick's website, engineeringandleadership.com, whose goal is to help engineers become the leaders they want to be. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Pat. Thanks so much, Neil. Appreciate it. So where did your interest in engineering come from? Uh, probably out of high school. I was, a, I was a kid who was into math and Lego. I like to build things. And one of the things that I really kind of gravitated toward was, you know, wanting to be able to see the fruits of my labor, really wanting to, to, to build something. And I had uh, engineers in the family as well who totally encouraged that and really ushered me along that route. Okay. My story isn't, isn't sim- is similar, but not, not that similar. So I didn't have anybody in my family who were engineers, and I was pretty good at math, not so much at Lego. But, but I remember when I was finishing high school, my father told me that I should study engineering. I think it more mainly was, you know, being good at math and science is one thing, but more more along the lines that it was a pretty stable profession. So once you yeah, totally yeah yeah, there's a degree you could get a job doing something as opposed yeah, to yeah yeah yeah. There's a pragmatic element to it. Yeah, for sure, and and you know it, it worked out pretty well. I mean, it, it's, it's 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 it has sustained me thus far. So I'm not too <laughs> upset that that's what he told me to do as opposed to go study. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gender studies or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so why why electrical engineering in, in particular? So electrical was was kind of a, a direct recommendation that I got from this uh, this uncle of mine who worked um, years and years to the Department of National Defense. And, and what he said is, if you get into electrical, you can work in any industry. The idea being, if you got into, you know, anything from power systems to instrumentation, there's not an industry that that wouldn't touch. So his advice was to pursue electrical so that uh, my level of employability was that much higher. That was, that, that was the, whole, the whole idea. He said, you know, the, the other thing is the electrical guys are smart. They can figure out most other things too. If you, if you have that level of math and that, that kind of background, you're, you're going to be setting yourself up for the future. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about that. I remember I did one electrical class. I think it was my, yeah, it was my freshman year, electricity and magnetism. And yeah, it was tough. I, I was, I always thought that the electrical engineers were the, were the smart engineers. So your uncle's recommendation was a good one. Is not one that you regret? Uh, it was, it was an excellent recommendation. Um, as it so happens, I've, I've drifted out of electrical in a, in a pretty serious way over the years. So I'm still, I'm still happy to have had that background and, and still draw from it for sure. But uh, these days you'd, you'd be, I'd be better described as a systems engineer and uh, and a project manager than anything else. Okay. So what type of jobs have you done since you, since you, you know, graduated from electrical engineering? I know you mm-hmm. mentioned systems engineering. Yeah. So I started out in uh, building facilities design, um, kind of nuts and bolts 
power systems, lighting, uh, motor control centers, that kind of stuff, and drifted from there into energy management, both in, in consulting and with, uh, with utility. Uh, then I kind of uh, really, really got my start in, in systems engineering with a big Canadian company called Bombardier. Uh, they do planes and trains, and I was involved in the, uh, the trains division. So I ended up becoming uh, a product manager and a chief engineer for a couple of the automated rail systems that Bombardier developed in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, since then, I've moved into the defense industry, um, and I do work for, uh, for the Canadian Navy. Again, um, <clears throat> best described as a as a, a project manager and a systems engineer. Oh wow! So, what exactly is a systems engineer? Uh, it's a funny discipline. It's it's relatively new. If you look at systems engineering as a uh, as a discipline, you you could call it, it. It's similar to project management in that twenty years ago, project management was you know it was it was kind of a thing, but it wasn't as well established as it is today. Systems engineering is like that. It's 20 years removed from being a, a, a really mature, well-understood discipline. Systems engineering is all about the, the design and, and organization of the, the approach you take to designing complex systems. So if you're designing a widget that you, know, you as an individual can, can hammer out yourself, um, you don't typically need systems engineering, but when we start talking about things like rail systems or fighter jets or nuclear power plants, the complexity involved in designs like that and the number of people you have to coordinate um, gets to be a really complex effort in and of itself. And there's a layer of engineering that has to be put in place in order to, to make sense of what is it we're even making in the first place? What are the system's requirements? How are we going to parse things out such that we can, we can go send little design packages to detailed design engineers to go do their thing, take their design back, and mash it together with all the other little designs to make sure that at the end of the day, you get something that really does do the job that you set out to do in the first place. So in the rail world, it was the difference between getting a bunch of train parts and actually having a working train at the end of the day and one that would go the speed that you needed it to go and stop as quickly as you needed it to stop and carry the people it needed to carry. Because in, in detailed design engineering, no one, no one person is responsible for uh, the carrying capacity of a train. It, it, you need to involve mechanical engineers, propulsion guys, brake guys, HVAC guys, and someone needs to be there to, to coalesce around and to organize that effort. And that's a systems engineer. Hmm. So for a, to become a systems engineer, do you have to be or have a, a particular engineering discipline background or can any engineer become a systems engineer? Um, systems engineers come from a, a wide variety of different backgrounds. And I work with systems guys who grew up as civil engineers, mechanical, electrical, industrial. Typically, it's not something you would do right out of undergrad. Uh, there aren't that many undergraduate systems engineering programs out there. Lots of master's programs. The idea being that you ought to be thrust into the world and do a bunch of design work for a little bit before you can really contextualize what a systems engineer would even do or, or why there's value there. Okay. Yeah. So for someone like yourself who now has this background in systems engineering, what... 
I guess there's there's no um, reason to go back to school to get that master's in, in systems engineering, is there? I guess the, the, the discipline or the, the experience trumps a degree at this point? I wouldn't say that. Um, and the reason I, I, I go there is there are, like any other discipline, um, there are uh, subfields that you can really get specialized in. For example, uh, one of the big things in systems engineering right now is something called model-based systems engineering. And what that, that sub-discipline proposes is that it, it makes more sense to describe complex systems by using models rather than a stack of papers. You know, the traditional way of describing a system and its design and what should it do and how to maintain it is you, you write a bunch of reports and it would, you know, be put in binders that thick and still doesn't do a very good job of actually describing the system. The alternative is to build um, models, things like, you know, flow charts and diagrams and that kind of thing and use kind of specialized uh, so software and programming languages to describe how that system would behave. So that when you want to look at a certain aspect of the system, be it how it's maintained or how the parts physically relate or how the parts functionally relate, it's easy, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. And model-based systems engineering is, is the discipline that sees systems that way. So you could spend a lifetime figuring that out versus requirements management or verification and validation. So if you were to go do a master's, you'd learn a lot about the nuts and bolts, hands-on tools and techniques that, you know, based on, based on uh, an individual's particular experience may not have been exposed to, right? So I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of value, even with someone who's experienced in going out and, and backstopping that experience with education. All right. Well, since you've said all of that, is a master's in systems engineering your future, you think? Uh, it's very possible. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's something that, uh, well, uh, like you mentioned off the top, I did my MBA. That's something I did part time while working because it, I saw my career drifting more toward the management of the work and the management of, of teams and how work happens in an engineering context. A systems engineer is kind of the technical version of that. And I like having a foot in both worlds. So I, I could absolutely see myself going and plugging away at a, at a part-time master's in systems engineering. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, my next question, you kind of answered it, but uh, yeah, I did notice from your background that you got an MBA. How long after you finished engineering did you go for your MBA? Uh, I was out of school for five or six years when I started and then plugged away at it for three years. And that's something that if any of your... Uh, any of your audience is considering an MBA, I'm I, I going to say I, I had a fantastic time. I learned a lot. But I would say it was very, very important for me to have had that little bit of experience out of school first because it contextualizes what you learn. I could go to class one day and then apply what I learned the very next day at the office. And there's no substitute for that to be able to, to really solidify what you're learning in, in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. What, what school did you do your, your MBA at? It's uh, the Royal Military College of Canada. So I have a curiosity. So I've had this conversation even with a, a previous guest, Andrew Kelly, and just in, in my general life. You know, 
at least from what I understand, where you get your MBA can be important depending on what you kind of want to end up doing. The, did you choose your MBA program based on its, its reputation or was it just kind of a convenience factor? Uh, I, I did not choose it based on reputation. Most people in Canada don't know that the Royal Military College has an MBA program. And for me, <clears throat> I was comfortable with that because I was already an established professional, professional engineer, working in a big company. I had a professional network, so that wasn't something that I, I was looking to I wasn't looking to add brand value to my resume, so to speak. The flip side of that was that most of the professors who taught in my program also taught in another school where I was living in Kingston called uh, Queen's University, which is one of the big MBA programs in Canada. It, was, it's, it does have name recognition. I was using the same textbook and largely getting courses taught by the same professors. So I had a degree of confidence that I was getting a quality education. So I was happy with that. The third factor is that this is a, a, a subsidized program. Because the Royal Military College is a federal institution in Canada, uh, tuition was a heck of a lot cheaper. So it was fantastic. I didn't have to remortgage my house, right? <laughs> Which was, that was a nice feeling. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a, a nice confluence of a, a number of things that made it the right choice. And, and frankly, I never even thought to look at the school to see if it had an MBA program until, I, I, and I don't know what, what struck me that day to, to look it up, but it, all the pieces fit. It was great. Well, you know what? That's a, that's a very engineering type of mentality to take. Very, very pragmatic <laughs> yeah, yeah. attitude to have towards it. You know, you learn the same things as you learn at, you know, one of the bigger universities, the ones that have the, the bigger, better, or bigger reputations. But hey, you're able to get the same, the same, you know, value or the same, you know, the same knowledge. And you said you already had that network from when you work as an engineer. I mean, why, as you said, why remortgage your house? You know, right. something else. <laughs> so when it comes to engineeringandleadership.com, when did you start that? Started that in uh, 2012. Okay. And what was, the, I guess, the motivation for starting that website? The motivation was, it, it was driven largely by enjoying writing and recognizing that some of the things that I enjoyed most at work involved mentoring younger engineers. I loved when someone came to my desk with a problem that they had never seen before, um, especially with respect to soft skill type stuff. Like, hey, Pat, how do I convince my boss that this is a good idea? I've got this idea and I'm worried he's just going to crush it before I can even really present it to him. What, how do you suggest I approach that? I, I love that kind of stuff. And the blog was a way to, to share that with a wider audience. I really believe that engineers come out of school with really strong technical skills. And, and this is a theme that, that's come up a couple times already, is that without those skills being contextualized and, and refined for the real world, they don't really have a good way to, to show themselves. It's hard to use those skills if you don't wrap them around while well, you were talking about uh, teach the geek to speak, you know, that kind of thing. That's, it's critical. If you cannot present your ideas in a clear, concise way, you're toast, no matter how brilliant you are technically. So this website was really a way to share my passion for that kind of thing and, and do my part to, to help engineers do a better job of what they do.
You know what? You're absolutely right, Pat. I mean, what the whole idea for, for Teach the Geek to Speak, as you mentioned, is you know, engineers come out of school and, in, and even in, maybe in their first couple jobs, you know, we, we're using these technical skills and they're really important to have. But man, if you're not able to, to talk to especially decision makers on, 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 what, on what you're doing and why it's important that you're doing it and, and all of that, that could be the difference between a, a project getting canceled and getting approved. It could be the difference between getting a job and not getting a job and just, I, I guess, Engineering schools really need to do a better job at preparing students for, for that reality. I mean, yes, there's a lot of technical skills you need to have as an engineer, but man, I mean, they, all those skills will go to waste if you're not able to, to talk to people. And it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's just, it, it would seem kind of obvious, but when, when, it, it's only until we really come up, come up against <laughs> it, you realize how important it is. I, I, absolutely. I, when I was an engineer, uh, I worked in medical device and I had to give presentations every month in front of senior management. And I, I tell you, I, I was terrible at it at first. And I, I knew I was bad at it because during the question and answer sessions, you know, after you finish your presentation, they have questions. They'd be asking me questions that I actually answered during the presentation <laughs> I it in such a way yeah. that they would, could understand it. Yeah, yeah. So I basically wasted that time in preparing the, the presentation the way I did, not taking the, the I guess, the, the knowledge, the expertise, the, the wants and needs of the, of the audience that I was talking to into account. It's, it's yeah. something I think a lot of us engineers don't really give a lot, enough credence to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and writing skills are another uh, key deficiency, I think, for a lot of people coming out of school. Um, I, I'm in a position now where I manage a, I manage a team and um, the difference between the folks who are strong writers and those who aren't is, is remarkable. And it has very little correlation to how strong these guys are technically. I've got a lot of really strong technical folks who some are able to get their ideas across in an email and others just plain aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely an issue. And, you know, I'm starting, I'm starting off with, to teach the geek to speak and then you know it's going to try to build up build off of that so when it comes to all the jobs you've had i know you mentioned the knowledge you you manage a team you work in systems engineering you've done other other, you know, other types of jobs within engineering is i'm assuming public speaking is is pretty important in in the job that you had is that a fair assessment yeah it's never not been important that's that's for sure even right out of school we um the consulting company i worked for built itself around serving customers there they were there were customer relationship managers and these guys were well, you might hear my daughter in the background here yeah, <laughs> um they had customer relationship managers who that that was their their job is pick up the phone when the customer calls and you know if, if you needed to to do a presentation later that day to help a customer understand how a project was going or how a project should be going you had to show up and uh, drop everything and show up you know, um, in my role at uh, Bombardier, we were flying all over the world to help customers understand the designs we were uh, we were we were putting together for them. It's anytime you have to convince anyone of anything, public speaking is important, right? That's uh, it's it's critical, and not just that, but having the ability to listen and respond thoughtfully too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, see, you know, I mentioned earlier that when, when I started, 
in, in medical devices as an engineer. I wasn't very good at public speaking. When you started you know, having to use public speaking in your, in your career, were you good at it? And if not, what did you do to get better? Uh, I, was, I was okay out of, out of school, but that's something, you know, I, I, was, I was one of these kids who did uh, public speaking competitions in high school, right? I, I was one of those weirdos. And I enjoy being in front of a room. Uh, I'm a bit of a bit of a sucker for that, but I got to say that looking back, I've improved by leaps and bounds. And there's no substitute for just putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and and doing it. Find opportunities to speak, and it doesn't have to be a work setting. You it could be uh, somewhere where you volunteer. I coached youth soccer and getting parents together and getting their kids together and teaching lessons can have a, a huge influence on your ability to speak. Eventually it got to a point where, uh, so I, uh, through my website, a number of different companies have reached out to me to go uh, give talks or seminars on a number of things. And, and that's, been, that's been huge. I, to think that I've been paid to speak is remarkable. Right. But, but not so much if you consider the fact that, uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of my career in front of audiences speaking, maybe not always formal, maybe not always, uh, doing a great job of it. <laughs> right. But, but you get there. So yeah, practice makes perfect. For sure. And so when it comes to these speeches, I mean, you mentioned that you've been paid by various organizations to come speak. Do you have a process for preparing your, your speeches? And if so, what is it? Um, I do. And the, the process is similar to what any systems engineer might do to design a system. You start with the mission. What is it that you or your customer is trying to accomplish? So I'll give you an example. I was, I was asked to give a, a day-long seminar to a uh, to an engineering department in uh, outside of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, a city called Yazoo City, really a uh, really cool spot. And their engineering management was looking for, for their team to improve its productivity. So, okay, that's the mission. And I start, I start with that and I'll break that down into specific requirements, meaning, okay, I know what they're trying to accomplish, what is the checklist that I need to, I need to say, yeah, I've done this, that, and the other thing in order to accomplish that, that mission. So um, I would look at things like in, in the case of productivity, I would say, okay, how about being more productive with email, being more productive with design, understanding what your goals are such that you actually know what making progress even looks like in the first place. And, then you can work backwards into specific ideas and messages that you would like to communicate. So bullet points on, on recipe cards kind of thing. Once I get there, I don't like to, uh, I don't like to write everything out word for word or anything like that because it makes it, it, it serves as a crutch and it's a crutch you don't need. And, if you've not broken your leg, you probably shouldn't be walking around with crutches, right? That's weird. So better to make sure you understand the material and understand broadly what it is you'd like to get across and then practice it a bunch and trip over your words a bunch and think through 
how you might actually deliver it such that you can get your point across concisely and effectively, but not memorize it. The whole, the, the whole idea is to get to a point where you just, you just know what you need to say and show up and say it. And there may be some key phrases, um, especially when you introduce something or when you close something that, that you ought to have memorized or written out, something that, that's very clear, very punchy. Um, but other than that, yeah, I like, I like to keep it loose. And then it becomes conversational. It's easier to listen to someone who's speaking with you than as opposed to at you. Yeah, I fully agree with what you're saying. The idea of writing out a speech word for word is, is, is really a bad idea. And not only that, but and I've, I've been in, I'm sure maybe you can relate to this too, people that actually read their, their speeches. Sometimes they'll have, like a, they'll have a PowerPoint presentation and it'll just be chock full of text and they'll just read the entire thing. It's painful. It's, it's extremely painful. That's when, you, and that's when people you know, check out and go on their phones, start thinking about what they're going to have for lunch, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yep, yep, for sure, for sure. If you basically wasted, you wasted your time in preparing that speech and you wasted the audience's time because they weren't listening to you. And it's just, it's just a waste, just in general. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to public speaking for you, do you ever get nervous? And, and if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Yeah, I, I do get a little bit nervous, um, but I'm able to kind of channel that into excitement. And I think the best way to do that, to turn those nerves into something that's productive, is to think through the value that you're going to be providing someone. And what that means is the, the efforts you're putting in are really going to help somebody do something. You're either going to teach someone something or you're going to help convey an idea that if you really do believe that someone buying into that idea is a good thing, then it is something to, be, get, ex to, to, to get excited about. So visualizing that is, is important for me. To, to imagine myself in the room, seeing those heads nod, seeing people smile, imagine like, yes, like lives are better now that I've presented a certain idea. Uh, that's really exciting. So yeah, so no, I, I, do, I do get nervous, especially, especially when speaking to a new audience or on a topic I'm, I'm less comfortable with. But by the time, by the time it's showtime, I do, I do get quite excited about it. And I, I realize that that's something that's not everyone else shares. A lot of people get freaked out by public speaking. But. Yeah, for sure. But I think your tip about using visualization to kind of quell those nerves, I think it's a great idea. And it's actually something I mentioned in, in, my, in my course, Teach the Geek to Speak. It's something that I also do as well. You know, you, you imagine things going really well. <laughs> so, and, when, and, when, and when that happens and you kind of get into that, in that mind space of, Things are going to go well. It, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it's just it, there's no there's no downside to doing that. So yeah, I'm a big fan of visualization. I always do it for all my speeches. So. There's a good um, there's a good story about uh, swimmer uh, Michael Phelps, who I forget I forget the details of the story to be honest, but he was swimming in uh, one of the Olympic games, and partway through the race, his goggles filled with water, and the guys the guys swimming effectively blind. So anyway, he closed his eyes and did the last several laps with his eyes closed and ended up winning, winning the gold despite not seeing anything. And asked about it later, he said, well, I'd imagined it so many times. 
that I just, I just knew where my body should be based on what was going on. And I didn't really need to see. And it, it was, that, was, that was remarkable for me. I mean, we, wow. we are talking about a world-class athlete, right? But yeah. I, think there's, I think there's a lesson that, being, that can be gleaned from that. You know, I bet the people that lost him would be pretty impressed to hear know that. <laughs> <laughs> that guy didn't see nothing. They're like, yeah. man, I saw the whole thing. He still beat me? You kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when it comes to public speaking, are there any other tips that you could offer people if they are looking to become more effective at public speaking? I'd like to circle back on, on something I mentioned, and that is speak with people, not at people. There, there's, there's a difference between um, speaking and, and lecturing. And one of the, the most important things that you can get from that, the, differentiating the two in your mind, is if you're not looking to deliver, you know, uh, the, the, the certain words you have on your paper, and you're looking to deliver instead an idea, you can use the feedback of the room either in what they're actually saying or the questions they're asking or their body language to tailor the way you deliver things. Maybe you visualized how things were going to go and that's not how things are going. That's okay. Maybe you skip ahead a couple slides if you've got, if you've got a, a slide deck to really focus on what it is that your audience is actually interested in. And if you treat things more like a conversation and less like lecturing, then that's no big deal. Every conversation you have throughout the day, you don't know how that's going to go, and somehow you survive, right? <clears throat> so, understanding understanding that, um, and and really prioritizing knowing your material, anticipating the questions that might come up based on what you're talking about, and knowing knowing your stuff cold is is critical, and and is going to improve your ability to get your ideas across and make you just more comfortable in the first place. No, that's definitely something that I got a lot better at when I had to give presentations in front of management. I mean, the yeah. first few ones, I wasn't anticipating what kind of questions they would ask. So then when, sometimes when they would ask them, I'd be completely caught off guard. But as I, as the, you know, as the, as the years went on, I, I realized that, you know, it'd be, my, it'd be in my interest, it'd be in my best interest to at least, do a, as, as good a job as I can to anticipate these questions so I would seem as a, I guess as a subject, subject, manager, subject matter expert to, these, to the people that are in the room because a lot of times, you know, their background wasn't in mine and I'm explaining something to them that, they, as I said, they don't have a background in. So if I'm able to answer those questions, in a, in a th as you mentioned earlier, in a, in a thoughtful way by being able to anticipate those questions, it just, it, it would... It would behoove me to do that. So that's yeah, definitely something that I learned as I, as I continued on having to give these presentations. So that's, that's an excellent tip. So is there anything else that you'd like people to know about any of the stuff that you're currently working on? Oh, I guess I would say if, uh, if people are, are interested in learning more about the kind of things that, uh, that I talk about, that I write about, um, engineeringandleadership.com is the place to go. There's, there's a ton there having to do with, uh, especially with public speaking and communication. So uh, I would, I'd invite people to, to go there. And if they want to reach out to me, they can, they, they've got my contact information through the website. So I, I love chatting with people, especially about this kind of thing. Excellent.
Well, everyone, that marks the end of another episode of Teach the Geek Interviews. I'd like to thank my guest, Pat Sweet, for being with us today. Again, my name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's a public speaking course. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>